Our second Bible reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 5, and uh, Bob will be bringing us the message of this uh, in a moment. You remember the ark's been captured by the Philistines. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken, broken off, and they were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and in, in its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of, God of, of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the, Lord, of the God of Israel to Gath, obviously. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought the ark of the Lord of God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, what we hear and uh, reflect on today, um, direct our thoughts and our hearts, remind us that you are the one true God and before you there will be no rivals. Um, I'm Bob Pickworth. For those who don't know me, I've been coming here for uh, 37, 38 years, uh, but don't often get to the 10 a.m. service, so if you don't know my face either. I can see a few Kuiper faces here. Uh, if you don't know me, um, I am a local. Um, there's two things I want us to think about, reflect upon today. And the first one is that um, <clears throat> what sometimes seems defeat leads to victory. And God's ways are not man's ways and what we might sometimes see as defeat is actually victory and the second one is that God will have no rivals he has no rivals um, Jerome the third century 
theologian said, a Christian's heart, hands and mouth must agree. When I was thinking about that, <clears throat> I thought of that uh, little pic that you've probably all seen, the three monkeys here, no evil, see no evil, do no evil. When I was a little bloke, I don't know if we still sing it in Sunday school now, but we used to sing, uh, little ears, be careful what you hear, little eyes, be careful what you see, uh, little mouth, be careful what you say. And what Jerome was saying was the same thing. Christian people need to be single-minded, focused. What should they be focused on? The one true God. Um, I've got a pup at the moment. She is eight months old. Rosie is her name. Uh, I bought Rosie from Victoria. And uh, before I bought her, I decided she was going to be a retrieving trial champion. Pretty hard to achieve that, um, but that's... That's what I have decided she will be, and I am single purpose. I'm, I'm working single-mindedly towards that uh, purpose. So she gets trained three, four, five times a day, um, almost every day. And the first thing you've got to teach a dog to do if you're going to control it and it's not going to train you, which is what most dogs do with most of their owners, is you've got to have their eyes fixed on you. They've got to be watching you all the time. What's the boss thinking? What's he want me to do? What should I be doing? Um, <clears throat> most people train their dogs operant conditioning, Pavlovian conditioning. Uh, give a command when the dog... Uh, performs a behaviour and you reward it until the reward can be removed and the cue or the bridge, the word or the sound uh, causes the dog to do what you want it to do. So hold some food up above the dog's nose, it puts its bottom on the ground, you say sit, you give it the food. And it thinks, oh, park my bum on the ground, I get some food. That's pretty easy until the word sit becomes the... Now, um, the easiest way to train a Labrador is with food. They're a, they're a garbage can on legs. And some, some dogs respond to food and some don't respond to food, but labs respond to food. So I've got a little pouch I keep on my side and it's always full of treats. And I've got to be careful to check my pockets before they go through the wash because Julie doesn't like to see a mashed up... Um, dehydrated ball of goodos in my pocket after it's come off the line. Uh, so all the time, and the dog's looking up at me all the time, am I going to get a treat? What have I got to do to get it? And she'll go through a whole range of behaviours in order to get that. She's trying to work out what I want her to do. So uh, she's absolutely hypo dog, absolutely hypo. When I got her, I bought her by pedigree alone, didn't know um, what she was going to look like and I don't really care because it's her behaviour that I want. Isn't it great God doesn't care what we look like, whether we've got long hair or a beautiful face? or It's the heart. And, and when I got Rosie, I got in touch with quite a few of my mates and I said, look, I'm after a working dog and they all said, oh, you've got to get one from American Lions. The English dogs look spectacular, but by comparison, they're big and the fat, they waddle around, they do a bit of running, then they want to lie down and sleep for the rest of the day. They said, what you want to do, I can see a few Labrador owners, breeders uh, nodding, uh, what, what you've got to do is you've got to get one from a working line, it'll look like a Kelpie, but it'll run like a greyhound and it just will not stop. But it comes at a cost, and the cost is, they're nuts, they're psycho. 
But they're always trying to work out how to please you, all the time. So with Rosie, um, she can now sit, stay, I can send her back, send her right, send her left, put her in the dam, I can uh, drop a, a dummy, a retrieving dummy at the end of the paddock. She doesn't know where it is, I can walk 150 metres away, line her up and she's looking around with her head and when she gets her head in the right place I say yes. So she goes yes, oh there's a treat here, there's a back and she'll just go in a straight line until she falls over the dummy and then she comes racing back, boss I've got it. Now. The idea is that the food is replaced by the dummy, her retrieving drive. What's in her heart, she was bred, her background has all been funnelled into working and pleasing me. Generally, if you're going to choose a dog as a pet, anything that has a working dog group in it is a good choice. Anything with a hound or terrier group is a bad choice because all they want to do is please themselves. Get on the centre. Snoopy would be the worst dog you could ever choose as a pet. A beagle will get on the scent of something and you'll see it three days later when it comes back for a feed and has, hasn't caught the rabbit it went off to chase. But the working dogs, they, they want to please. That's what God wants us to be like. I think it's kind of interesting that dog is God backwards or God is... A, now, I'm not a cat lover, but... Um, I think there's something significant about that. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm not trying to draw any biblical comparison between those two things. Um, but God wants us to be careful what we hear, what we say, and what we do. And in the passage that we're reading this morning, we see something pretty interesting about the false god Dagon and what happens to his thinking parts and his doing parts, which we'll get to in a minute. But there's a couple of things I want us to think about or reflect on before we do that. Uh, the first thing is that the Philistines were long-term enemies of the Israelites. Soon as God gave the Israelites Cain and the Promised Land and they moved in, there was, there was disharmony with the Israelites. And that went on for centuries. So the passage that we read this morning, 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 5, wasn't just... Uh, um, a skirmish. It was part of a long-term ongoing rivalry that was happening there. Now, in ancient times, rivalry or battles were about land, they were about resources, they were about getting near the ports, but they were very intricately wrapped up with how that victory happened. And they realised that the that winning a battle wasn't just about being big or strong or having the largest army, but there are other elements involved there as well. So they put it down to their gods. So when they had a victory, they attributed that to their gods blessing them. Now, Dagon was a god of harvest. If you have a look at the picture up there, you'll see that he's a fish god. Uh, Akron and Ashdod, those areas were on the Mediterranean Sea. 80% uh, of the Australian population lives within 65 kilometres of the ocean. All our, our large centres are near the ocean. Why? Because we have a maritime climate that gives us plenty of rainfall. You can grow crops close to transport ports, etc. They were the same. So Dagon was 
a god of crops and harvest and fish. They were near the sea. So they built this god to look like the things that were important to them. Now, Dagon was a stone idol and he had a, a physical image, half fish and half man. God said in Exodus chapter 20, I'm the Lord their God, you will have no other gods before me, a second commandment, do not make anything, any idol or any image, including one to look like me. God said, I do not want you to make an image to remind you of me because I am God. I will be with you. You are my people. I am you. You do not need an image and I don't want you to make an image. Why did he say that? Because we're superstitious people and we will turn something good into something not so good. And that's what actually happened with the ark. Get to that in a minute. So the representation for the children of Israel was the ark of the Lord. Now it's interesting, five times in uh, chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, we hear about the ark. Whose ark was it? it wasn't the children of Israel's ark. It wasn't the Jews' ark. It was God's ark says the ark of the Lord or the ark of God. That was God's ark. Now, what was an ark? It was just a receptacle. It was a wooden box. Mind you, it was a pretty special wooden box. It was 1.1 uh, metres long, about a metre, well, 0.7 of a metre high and 0.7 of a metre wide. So it was pretty small. It wasn't, you know, it was probably, probably about this size. Um, very specific rules about uh, how it was to be constructed, um, what, what was in it was the Ten Commandments, God's law for his people. And that was the essence of who God was. His law was the essence of who he was. So what did the, the ark represent? Well, it was covered in gold. The, the top slab had two angels, seraphim and seraphim. This is a, an artist representation. We don't know if that's what the ark looked like, but it was probably pretty close. It was never to be touched by human hands. That's why the two rods that went through it, there were lots of rules about uh, how it was to be transported. It was always to be covered if it was being moved in public. It was never to be on open display. And in the middle between the seraphim and the cherubim was the mercy seat. That was kind of representative to the children of Israel where God was, where he sat, the mercy seat of God, God's mercy for his people. But it wasn't God. It was the presence of God or the face of God for the people. It was their most significant icon. It wasn't an object to be worshipped. It was God who was to be worshipped. In fact, the people never saw the ark. The only person that could ever see the ark was the high priest and once a year and he went in, if we could have the next slide, he went into this special place inside the tabernacle. That's a picture of uh, the dimensions of the tab tabernacle. That's a recreation from the Old Testament dimensions that were given. The tabernacle or the temple, uh, when the children of Israel were going through um, Egypt, 
from Egypt through the wilderness, uh, the tabernacle was, was a tent, and the place of meeting was inside that area where there uh, was um, uh, an altar, and inside the holy place was the holy of holies, the most holy place, which was... Um, separated by a curtain, a curtain made of a single piece of material. It says in the New Testament when Jesus was crucified that that separation from the people was torn in two and that single piece of woven curtain was torn in two. Now, it was woven probably from wool, might have been mohair because they had goats as well as sheep there, they reckon, well, the, the commentaries I read reckon that it was probably about 200 kilos in weight. So it's a pretty significant curtain. So for that to be ripped in two, be a pretty big deal. But the instant that Christ was crucified, that separation, which represented the separation of the presence of God with his people, was torn. So there was no longer this separation, which is wonderful for us because what appeared to be a defeat, Jesus on the cross, was actually Christ's victory for our benefit. But talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So this ark was really, really significant to the Jewish people. When it got captured, we heard last week, when the word got back to Eli, he was so dumbstruck, he fell over backwards and died, split his head, crashed on the ground. Uh, it was either Phineas or Hophni's wife, I can't remember which one was in uh, labour, or, or it triggered the labour and she gave birth to a son, she called him Ichabod, uh, God has left us, and she died. And the people went into mourning because Phineas and Hophni, who were embezzlers, seduced the women, um, they um, stole money from the coffers. They inappropriately used the sacrifices. They led the people astray. They were the priests who were in charge of the, the tabernacle, the temple, the holy place. And when they saw the Philistines were getting some victory in the battle, they thought they would turn the presence of God, the ark, uh, into an idol. They actually turned it into an idol. They said, oh, we'll go and get the ark and we'll take it into battle and surely we'll be successful. Happened in Jericho. We didn't even have to lift a finger there. We just walked around and the, the walls... God will do the same for us. We'll take this symbol of God and they turned it into an idol and God would not have that. And so the uh, Israelites were defeated soundly and the ark was captured. And it appeared that the Israelites had been defeated. But God will have no rivals. So what did the Philistines do? They thought, oh, beauty. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll honour our God, Dagon, and we'll put the ark, this little wooden box, pretty special little wooden box, we'll put it at the feet of Dagon. If we could have the next slide, please. Okay, and what happened? Well, the first day it went in front of the idol, the idol fell over. People probably thought, oh, he tripped, we'll, we'll stand him up again, no big deal. And they stood him up. But the next morning when they got up, not only was he on the ground grovelling before God, face down before God, bowing before the presence of God, but his head and his hands were snapped off. 
Now, in um, ancient times, it was pretty common for uh, prisoners to be killed, and usually they were decapitated, but sometimes they didn't decapitate them. Sometimes they'd remove some body parts. Now, they wouldn't do that if they were going to keep them as slaves, because if they cut their hands off, not much a slave can do for you if he doesn't have his hands. Uh, but sometimes they'd just remove some body parts so they could still keep them as slaves, but they couldn't fight. For instance, we use some um, symbols of derogatory uh, recognition now that are not well known or remembered. For instance, you know, that used to be, uh, 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 I don't agree with you. Um, what you've got to say, I don't agree with. But you can't do anything without your thumb. You, you can't even hold a cup of tea. Other than pick your nose, that's about all you can do without your thumb. I had a friend, Mark Grieve, some of you might know him as a teacher at uh, Nepean Christian School when I was there, uh, lost his thumb. They cut his big toe off and grafted his big toe onto his hand, so he's now got his right thumb uh, as his big toe, or the other way around. Uh, because you can't, So what they used to often do was take the, the thumb off their, um, their prisoners and keep them as slaves. And I guess they didn't have computers then to press buttons. They had to work out something they could do without their thumb. The same thing with their fingers. So we use, you know, uh, some symbols of derogatory uh, recognition towards others. So where, where did that come from? Well, in medieval times, the first line of attack was the archers and they would be behind the foot soldiers and they'd rain arrows down on, the, on their rivals and hopefully knock a few of them off. But if you're an archer without your fingers, you can't hold the bowstring and you, you're useless. No good. So what they used to do was take those fingers off and keep them as um, slaves. Now, what they used to do when they go into battle, they go, yeah, you're not going to get me, I've got my fingers, my fingers are going to get yours, you know. And so they were using that as a derogatory term of, um, I won't use the Vulgate language, but, you know, we're going to get you and you're not going to get me. So what, what God did when his presence, when the ark was put before the temple of Dagon, he executed, in effect, Dagon. Smashed down in front of him, head off, hands off. He was found guilty. He was executed and the people recognised it. The people recognised it such that they even made a superstition about it. After he was found in that position, the people said, or the priest said, we're going to recognise this day in all history of the Philistine people. From this point of time, no one will step over the threshold of Dagon's temple where Dagon was face down before God. So I actually recognised that Yahweh, the one true God, was a more powerful God than, they, than their God, Dagon. So what was the next thing that happened? Their God of harvest and provision was smitten everywhere that the ark was offloaded because it brought disaster and calamity. Everywhere it went, the people were covered with tumours and people died. And there was a huge plague of 
I'm not sure if it was mice or rats, but it was certainly rodents. Now, if you've ever been out west when there's been a rodent plague, it's amazing. Uh, it's just incredible to walk into a, to a granary and just see the floor move. Like, there are thousands upon thousands of mice. And rats can breed the same too. So what do they eat? They eat grain. So their god, Dagon, the god of provision, the god of grain, the god of harvest, not only were the people smitten with tumours, but their very sustenance was taken away from them. Uh, if you go to eat something and you find mouse or rat dirt there, you think, oh, I'm not really that hungry. So the people... It's believed, some of the commentators I read about, they believe that the tumours were actually the plague, the bubonic plague. It could have been other things. <laughs> One commentary I read said it could have been hemorrhoids, which is probably just as bad as the plague. But um, the, uh, the, the concept was the people were smitten. And they recognised it. Why? Because they, they said, we'll get the presence of God away from us. So they recognised that Yahweh was greater than their God, Dagon. The one true God was, in fact, the one true God. We'll learn next week. I'm not sure who's preaching next week, but I'm sure they'll bring out the, the concept that the Philistine leaders decided to make a guilt offering to the Israelites to send the ark back, but to send it back with a guilt offering. In other words, we're guilty, we know they're guilty. Here's an offering to God to take this calamity away from us. So now my dad used to say to me, if you hit yourself on the head with a hammer, don't complain when you get a headache, son. I can't understand, other than God's uh, intervention, why the people would recognise that Yahweh was a greater God than Dagon, bought the calamity on the people and yet they didn't do what would be the obvious thing to do, repent, turn their hearts and say, you're the one true God, Dagon's off the scene, we're now worshipping you. But that's no different to us today. I mean, look around at our world and people do not recognise the one true God. An interesting thing that I found about this, um, this whole scenario was that when the presence of God, the ark, was in Dagon temple, not only did he um, find him wanting, execute him, he did it in his own temple. God was in Dagon's territory. And he didn't use the Israelites to do it. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. He wants us to be his. Um, what I want Rosie to do is what I want her to do. And it's great when I send her out to do uh, a task, go out and get the dummy, return it, come back to me, sit there with it in the mouth, deliver it to hand, come around to heel, I walk. She sits, tell her to drop, she's on the ground, quick as a flash. It's great. But when she doesn't, and she grabs the dummy and she looks at me and I go to get it and she runs away, I want to wring her neck. But I can't catch her. She's twice as fast. And that's the same with us. God wants our heart to be his heart. And when we don't do what he wants us to do, well, the consequences are that even though he's merciful because he loves us, he doesn't let us get away with doing 
wrong thing. Because he loves us, he doesn't leave us where we are. He accepts us where we are when we come to him, but he doesn't leave us there. He brings about change in our life so we um, please him, which is what gives us great pleasure. Another interesting fact to reflect upon with the ark, once a year, the Day of Atonement for Sins, the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he'd sprinkle blood, the blood of sacrifice. Now, an animal was killed, death, suffering, pain, in order for God to accept the sacrifice. Now, for a long time as a Christian, I really struggled with, if God really loves us, why has there got to be death and pain and suffering? Why can't God just say, I forgive you, and that's it? Well, anyone who's a parent knows this. Anyone who's been in love knows this. And from the experience we have with our friendships, we know forgiveness costs. When someone hurts you, when they, when they really hurt you, you can do two things. You can forgive them. You still feel the pain. They did the wrong thing. I really hurt. I want revenge. But what does revenge deliver? Only more pain and suffering. Forgiveness is a release. I read a really interesting book by John Bevere called The Bait of Satan. And the bait of Satan is bitterness. And he said uh, bitterness, revenge, is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And forgiveness is like having a captive and letting it go and realise that you're the captive. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, we read that Satan beguiled our first parents, Adam and Eve, and, and told them that um, you can have your cake and eat it too. Look, God doesn't really mean you're going to die. But, of course, that's what happened. It didn't mean instantaneous on-the-spot death, but mortal death, a, a limited lifespan. And God pronounced judgment on Satan. He said, uh, your head will bruise the heel of uh, Eve's descendants, meaning Jesus. Death on the cross, bruise the heel, the, the death, the pain. And he will crush your head. In the same way that Dagon's head was crushed, and that's kind of a representation of Satan in the same way that the serpent, who wasn't Satan, but was a representation of Satan, uh, his head was crushed. And that enmity still happens today. There's not many people who see a snake and say, oh, that's pretty cute. Most people today, if you see a snake slithering along, they probably want to get away from that. And some people are quite phobic about it. So I think there's something there that's a bit deep-seated too. There's another aspect to uh, the ark and Dagon, that God will have no rivals, that we need to learn from this passage, and that is that God will not be manipulated. We can't do deals with God. We can't trade with God. We can't take the ark into battle and assume we're going to have victory because we've said to the people, oh, this is God and God's... God doesn't need us to do his work. He wants us 
to do his work. But I don't need Rosie. I, I can live a quite fulfilled, happy life without Rosie. But I want her to do what I want her to do. And a well-trained dog is a happy dog. A dog that's running around like a mad thing, chasing stuff and doing whatever it wants and its owner's running around and chasing it and calling it's running away and looking back, smiling, wagging its tail. You know, the, the, the outcome for that dog eventually is not a good outcome. And the pound is full of dogs like that. And it's the same with our heart. God wants our heart to be focused on him and recognise that he is the one true God. And so this passage this morning is an example to us to recognise what happens to those that have rivals before their God. Um, and what's the God of this age? Well, there are lots of them. If you look at the advertising on telly, it doesn't take long to work out that it's, you know, we're an iSociety, iPad, iPhone, iBook. It's, it's about me. You know, the, the neo-Darwin, Darwinian materialist uh, concept is that um, you die, you become worm bait, and that's the end of it. That's not what that's like at all. God never intended it to be that way. And the work of Jesus on the cross, that sacrifice that he took, the pain, the suffering, the blood that was represented in the Old Testament also on the Day of Atonement, the curtain was ripped, separation from God removed, so now we can have the presence of God with us, and that's, of course, the Holy Spirit. Um, in the same way that the ark represented that for the Israelites, Jesus is with us for that today. Uh, have we got one more slide? So how do we maintain that relationship and presence of God in our heart? <laughs> Unless we're praying to God and we're reading his word, we're running on automatic. God doesn't want us to run on automatic. He wants us to run on him and his word to be in our hearts so that we know what... If I don't train Rosie... She won't do anything. Well, she doesn't know what to do. I haven't told her, I haven't trained her, I haven't reinforced her. She'll just do whatever she wants to do. And she'll, she'll be a nice dog. Well, she won't actually, she's nuts. She'll, she'll dig, she'll chew, she'll bark, she'll find things to do. She'll find work to do that is destructive. But trained and encouraged and motivated, I'll bring her in. Um, in a year's time, when, when she's a, a bit more um, settled, Labradors start getting brains at about 16, 18 months. They're quite obedient below that, but at about 16, 18 months, they're still babies. Um, <laughs> our son Andrew got lost at the show when he was about five, wandered off by himself. We were running around calling him, and eventually we found him. Oh, what's the big fuss? I just went for a walk. Uh, he got completely disoriented because he didn't do what he should have done, which he was told to do, which was to stay with his mother. Fortunately, he wasn't told to stay with his father. Um, so it was Julie's fault. No, it wasn't. Um, but but same, same, same concept, you know. If, if we're given a job to do, we know the job. How are we going to know how to please our God unless we're reading the word that he gave us, which he gave us today, which is, one, I will have no rivals, and secondly, the way to please God is through reading 
his word and staying in relationship with him. Heavenly Father, thanks for your uh, message to us today. Thank you that um, the God of Dagon is a false God and any God other than you is a false God. Help us to remember this and to honour you in all we say, do and think. Amen.